Hello, Cachimonas. Welcome to episode 49 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. On this episode, I was really honored to speak with Jasmine Ringel, who is a housing policy expert, to discuss how and why housing security is important, how the undocumented community is often overlooked in housing policy, and the results of a case study that she did analyzing Boston and Houston area eviction rates in immigrant-heavy neighborhoods. It was a really well-rounded discussion grounded in this study that she did. I'm really excited to be able to bring this policy discussion, something that isn't always happening in the podcast sphere, and share it with the Cachimbonas. Thank you to the newest patron, Victoria Sanchez. Thank you all so much. And I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I am really excited to have my guest, Jasmine Rangel. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to start out, um, I wanted you to frame the conversation by asking you to speak on how and why housing security is something that is important to pay attention to and mobilize around. Yeah, great opening question. Um, So this is something that I really love to talk about collectively amongst my group of, of friends and advocates across the country. We always think of housing as like this gateway to other social justice movements, because once you understand that housing is a linchpin for opportunity and our collective futures, like we know that housing is something that we just can't overlook in our society in the way that it is right now. So we know that the quality and location of the home that you can afford affects your living space and your household budget, but it also determines, you know, the quality of your schools, the length of your commute, your exposure to let's say hazardous materials or excessive heat or the risks for natural disasters. And so then that affects your health outcomes and your financial outcomes and your educational outcomes. Housing is just at the foundation of so many of our current inequities. And honestly, it's fueling a lot of our growing costs of living concerns. I mean, rents are continuously increasing, regardless if they say that the rental market is cooling, people's wages still aren't keeping up with those rents. And People know that and they know that they can't keep going on with the current status quo. And because housing affects so much of our lives, we've got to start thinking of it as a public good that benefits all of us. And people are organizing across the country and increasingly organizing to demand better housing conditions, costs, and accessibility in their community, you know, from rent stabilization being up in so many different places where we never thought it would be before. To campaigns that create social housing opportunities in Seattle and in California. It's also becoming a much more prevalent topic in electoral politics with voters increasingly voting in accordance to their identification as renters and the ways that they're, you know, increasingly struggling to make ends meet. And on the flip side, though, why we need to organize a lot more is because corporate interests in these large, yeah, corporate um, interests and profit-seeking entities are only 
worried about their bottom line of profit making and exploiting folks. And so they're also increasingly mobilizing themselves, landlords, property owners, corporate landlords, and elected officials with their massive pockets to make sure that the housing market benefits them and not just regular people like us. So yeah, and I think with today's conversation too, why we need to pay attention to housing and especially within certain communities like the undocumented community is because they're so often overlooked in conversations about housing policy. Uh, You know, a lot of the benefits that we currently have to support folks only go towards people that are considered U.S. citizens or legal residents. And at least with what I've seen in in the fieldwork that I did, neglecting the undocumented community is also neglecting a lot of really pressing concerns about substandard housing conditions and their health outcomes that they're facing really disproportionately because of their documentation status. Yeah, thanks for framing that up. And to get more into that case study that you did with the eviction lab, which hasn't been officially published yet. So also thank you for sharing your initial thoughts and findings with the Cachimbonas. In that case study, you all found that immigrant neighborhoods with high poverty rates have lower eviction rates than expected. Why is that, especially when high poverty, mostly people of color neighborhoods, do actually tend to have higher eviction rates? That's a conclusion that goes contrary to popular knowledge in this area. Yeah, it does go contrary to popular knowledge. And we were actually really surprised when those those findings came up. You know, why is it that neighborhoods that we typically expect to have high eviction rates aren't being evicted at those same rates as, you know, other places across the country with those same characteristics? And so we actually, in this case study that we did with the eviction lab, looked at two places specifically, Boston's Chinatown and the Gulfton neighborhood in Houston, Texas. And so my colleague did a lot of field work in Chinatown. She's Chinese American. And so she did a lot of that research. And then I led a lot of the research that I did in Gulfton as a Mexican American. Our language really helped us there to be able to reach communities. Um, But in Boston's Chinatown, what my colleague was able to find was that they have an enclave housing market that's maintained by immigrant networks in ethnic institutions. So co-ethnic institutions, they're all Chinese or some different part of China. And they generally have more affordable housing there, which has helped to maintain housing stability there for recent Chinese arrivals or just Chinese immigrants in Boston. But in Gulfton, we found something completely different. What we found there suggests that there's like this low-income renters market where landlords employ essentially a host of different practices to maintain what they identify as quote-unquote good renters in the neighborhood. So they're essentially forcing a housing stability to maintain their profits. But in both areas, we found that the stability that neighborhoods saw came at a significant price, which was the quality of their housing. But I think that there's still a lot more nuance that I know we're going to get into that we saw in Gulfton that is driven primarily by capitalist profit-making interests. Yeah. And so because my colleague did so much of the research in Boston's Chinatown, I'll be speaking probably in more detail to my work in Houston, but can still share a lot of those kind of like comparative findings. Yeah. Can you just speak to what differences you did see between the Chinatown neighborhood and the Gulfton neighborhood? One of the things 
just mentioned is that there are these ethnic associations, institutions that provide a lot of affordable housing for recent immigrant arrivals in Chinatown. And that was something you didn't see in Gulfton. So why do these differences arise? And what are the other differences that you saw? Yeah, so I would say why a lot of these differences arise is probably a really difficult question to necessarily ask. But I think that the environment in Boston Chinatown lended itself to be able to support recent arrivals and immigrants a little bit more. For example, I think Boston's Chinatown has so much, we found that it had so much subsidized housing compared to Gulfton, which helped keep rental housing affordable for folks. So it was easier to get folks into different housing opportunities, really. There are also decades-long standing family associations that supported residents to find jobs and housing in an effort to support assimilation, basically, in the area. Mm. And then Landlords were typically co-ethnic landlords, so they were also Chinese or Chinese descent, and they inherited properties or they've had long ties to Chinatown. So they they all have this like deep investment in their community and to help, you know, mm-hmm. they have this like, I've been there, I've done that, I know what it's like to be a recent arrival, I will support you in whatever way. And then I think the another part that we saw in Boston's Chinatown is that landlords tended to employ significant leniency for late payments. So mm. But any other place across the country, you know, you're a month late and you're already facing that eviction notice. But in a place like Boston's Chinatown, landlords were necessarily kind of like, yeah, it's okay. You can you can be late after the first month or yeah, after the first of the month. And they were more deterred. There's more of a significant deterrence about paying thousands of dollars in like legal funds to bring someone to court instead of just waiting for rent to come. Hmm. Yeah. Um, And so my colleague found that a lot of this was driven by immigrant solidarity and strong networks within Chinatown that help protect communities. But again, like I mentioned before, the tenants are still making significant trade-offs for less maintenance and investments into their property conditions. So they also had a lot of reports of bad property conditions, like broken windows or broken doors, pests and vermin. So the like of what you would not like to see in your home, um, they were experiencing. And, you know, landlords could get away with it in these sorts of situations because there's minimal options for immigrant tenants to go to. Um, Speak a little bit more to Gulfton. It was different, significantly different. And I kind of want to paint a picture of the history of Gulfton before I go into that a little bit more. I think we need to understand that it's a previous town that was primarily focused on being a residence to white, white collar workers in the 1980s. But as soon as they left the area and there was white flight, disinvestment followed in the area. And so those property owners and landlords of the area re-shifted their focus and targeting to a new clientele that was coming in, which was Central and South American immigrants. It came quite explicitly too that change in targeting because you know apartment buildings started to change their name to Spanish-sounding names, which was quite you know that's that's interesting to attract more of these Spanish-speaking clientele. But all the while, even though there was a shift from landlords, then disinvestment in these neighborhoods continued, and Gulfton specifically continued so much so you know there were landlords that noted 
how the crime was really bad in years before and how their involvement in property management came as a way to quote unquote clean out the bad crowds that they were um that they had identified as bad crowds and bring in supposedly new people who are trying to stay in really hard to rent units, which was just code for undocumented folks without any other options. Who was the bad crowd that landlords were trying to? Yeah, I, uh, I am not a hundred percent sure, but I assume that it's with those connotations, it's almost always black and brown folks who had just landed there. But again, I have doubts that it was really a quote-unquote bad crowd. It was more so to force displacement to get a much more vulnerable community in to control and to exploit. So... And so it's a commonality between the two neighborhoods that even though there is this stability in the sense of there being fewer evictions, there's a trade-off in terms of quality of life in these neighborhoods, quality of housing more specifically. Yeah, well, both. I would say both. Um, but I also don't want to say that the quality of life in these places was terrible Mm. right i think that people were working people are doing what they can to get by and working really intense low-wage jobs and we could see that significantly but they're also finding moments and ways to enjoy their life and family in their community i mean we saw quite a few impromptu festivals and block parties happen so people are doing their best to make to make the most of a not ideal situation. But I will also say that for some really recent arrivals that we had the opportunity to talk to, quality of life was really hard. Navigating a new place without a lot of support or employment opportunities after a grueling migration experience almost led them to essentially resent their arrival to the United States. They were like, we were promised something and it's not, it's not what we see here anymore. Even for some folks who had been there for a long time, too, they still face a lot of stress on trying to make it and survive with enough to eat and enough to support them and their families. But I will say what we could substantially see was a concerning substandard housing conditions. The quality of that housing was unlike anything that should ever be permissible for someone to live in. And I have like a laundry list, but to start... There are numerous reports of damage that was unfixed from the 2021 February freeze or from Hurricane Harvey, as well as reports of the February freeze. Oh, that's when the grid collapsed, the electrical grid in Houston or in Texas collapsed, and people were out of power and freezing Mm -hmm. for days at a time. Mm -hmm. So there were still there was still like resenting trauma uh, or um, continuing trauma from that experience, and then you know. Water damage and just property damage from Hurricane Harvey was still noted. Reports of pests and rats and cockroaches, other insects and vermin. The neighborhoods themselves also got a bit dangerous at night, where some residents would warn us about not being up too late or being alone. 
Uh, I had one person that we interviewed tell me about how one of their neighbors had recently discovered a deceased body in a dumpster not too long ago. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of open-air drug dealing happening in large apartment complexes. And I think that lends itself too to, you know, I talked about this delayed maintenance. Property managers and landlords aren't incentivized to keep up the property. They're not making much off of undocumented tenants that they're keeping there. They're making enough to make ends meet or to at least make some sort of profit to maintain what their status of uh, housing in those places. There was one complex where hundreds of residents, they were located across the street from an elementary school. And the residents noted it was great to live right across from the school so they could walk their kids to school every day. But it was not fun when it rained because this area, anytime it rained, completely flooded. And so they were waiting in water to pick up their kids from school to drop them off from school. And so that was just their daily life and they were just used to it. They noted how it was um, not ideal. And you and I know that's really dangerous for their health, Mm -hmm. especially for kids to be exposed to blood waters that high. Another complex I would probably regard as one of the worst places that we saw and who frequently the people that we talked to too, they noticed it was one of the worst places to live in the area. It was well-regarded amongst housing organizers, tenant organizers, and activists in the area as like the slumlord in the area. There was mold on many of the front doors of the apartments. I mean, one hall, a majority of the doors had mold on them. Common areas were slippery and dirty without much lighting. And some doors, like the young man's, uh, the door of the young man that we visited, it couldn't lock. And so he just was sleeping in an apartment and staying with his pregnant girlfriend in a place that couldn't lock and they had no insured guaranteed privacy. And to, I think, close out one of like the final ones that I think I still were, you know, two years from this experience, um, but it's still really vivid in my mind, uh, was one small one bedroom apartment that we visited. They not only had insects everywhere, they also had plumbing that hadn't been fixed for months and they were behind on rent quite significantly. And so they felt like they couldn't ask for these maintenance requests because they were behind on rent. Right. But that delayed maintenance had led the plumbing to leak into the sole bedroom where everyone was sleeping and soaked all of their belongings. <sighs> and it created a large black mold spot on one of the walls. But this family had no other place to go. So they were sleeping on the floor in this apartment with this giant spot of black mold. But, you know, these are the conditions. They they felt like they couldn't go anywhere else. They had no other options because that's all they could afford. And they believed that they were too behind on rent to demand for any of these repairs to be made. Um, like that, that really just stuck with me to the point where I just, um, I didn't know how, how we could neglect these experiences for too long without kind of sounding the alarm. Yeah. And I know from reading evicted that this is kind of a common negotiation imposition that landlords make on vulnerable renters where if they get behind on rent, then they just stop making them required repairs. Landlords are required to provide hospitable places to live. 
but they reject that responsibility and justify it by saying that this person is behind on rent, so I'm not obligated to fulfill my end of the landlord-tenant bargain. And it is like an effective intimidation tactic because folks weigh complaining about the conditions of their apartment against potentially being evicted and then having an official eviction on their record, which creates a cascading negative effect for them. And that's how you find people in these terrible holding situations, really, where there's black mold everywhere, there's insect infestations, there's not working plumbing, but people still are scared to leave because they think this is the best option for me. And I think for undocumented people, there's an added layer of vulnerability because there's this narrative that because they are here undocumented without legal authorization, any contracts that they entered into are done as a quote-unquote favor to them. Mm. And so they feel even less entitled to speak out against terrible conditions like this. And I'm really glad that we're having this conversation and sharing this with the listeners because that's really fucked up. Yeah, it is. And it, even if, let's say, um, you aren't undocumented, it's also so difficult to, like, who do you report these concerns to? You have to figure out how to navigate essentially all of the protective services that you have. Mm-hmm. And so when we realize that that's even more, that's difficult as it is for someone that's not undocumented. And then you add on this layer like you were saying, this additional layer of vulnerability. People might be scared to go to City Hall or to the people that are supposed to maintain or hold these landlords accountable to providing hospitable conditions because they're scared that they might get found out, that Migra gets called on them, who knows? And so they just kind of go under the radar. So I, I think that there's a lot of really great tenant leaders and organizers that are really emphasizing making sure that everyone undocumented or not knows their rights as tenants because they exist. Even if you don't have papers, you have rights as a renter to not have to keep up with these conditions. I appreciate that you mentioned the threat of immigration enforcement because that is definitely a tool that landlords explicitly use. That's often something that they like to weaponize even a reason why they might seek out undocumented tenants because they see them as easier to control because they have this ultimate threat of falling ice as a way to keep them quiet. And even if you are undocumented in this country, you do have housing rights and housing protections and you can't be discriminated against because of where you were born, because of your national origin. So If your landlord is threatening ICE and is trying to use that as an intimidation tactic, that is an illegal action that they're taking. And you Mm -hmm. do have rights that you can access to protect yourself against that kind of discrimination. Yeah, for sure. Something that we've been talking about with the Chinatown neighborhood and the Golfton neighborhood and sort of the benefits that come from these neighborhoods and some of the difficult things that people have to live with. But we haven't actually defined what an immigrant enclave is. And I know that that was a part of the framing of the study. So I wanted to ask you to define that. And can you talk a bit about the benefits that it provides to residents? 
especially with the Chinatown neighborhood, I saw that there are these ethnic institutions that are there to help assimilate recent migrants into the economy and wanted you to speak a bit more about that because I don't think that everyone knows that that is sort of a characteristic of an immigrant enclave and that there are benefits for people who live in these. Yeah. Well, I mean, when we started to get into the study, it made more sense to me to... So I grew up in Atlanta and close to the suburbs of of Atlanta. And I was always curious of why um, my parents always insisted on going to Mexican grocery stores, the little Mexican plaza that had, you know, the cell phone service and also the peluqueria, the salon, um, only going to these places ever. And so when I started this journey into this research, it all clicked to me. So, and to back up a little bit too, an immigrant enclave is a, the literature and sociology and urban sociology has defined it. It's a geographic area that has a high concentration of usually ethnic migrant populations who in this area have a distinct, unique collective cultural identity. And with that, they also typically have a unique economic or social institutions that are in line with that enclave culture. And so our hypothesis kind of going into this was based on that urban sociology literature that talks about how immigrant enclaves can provide protective qualities such as strong social ties and networks, supportive institutions like ethnic stores, like the Mexican grocery store, churches and social clubs, as well as, you know, a distinct cultural economy and labor market that shield members of the enclave from economic or social shocks. So losing a loved one or losing a job These institutions and these places are just key for folks to get through their lives, assimilating into a new country. And so I remember my dad going to these places and always talking about, oh, I'm getting Jorge that I met in the restaurant a job because I met him. Yeah, I just met him. We got to chatting. He let me know that he needed a job. And so I'm trying to connect him with different places. So just as an example, but take the case of a household facing eviction. If our hypothesis were true coming into the study, we'd see that maybe someone facing an eviction would lean heavily on their church or on their comadre, compadre to help them pay rent for the month and then avoid an eviction. Or maybe, you know, a household was never in jeopardy of facing an eviction because they always had steady income working with a co-ethnic business. And so with this study, we really wanted to find out how immigrant renters cope within their social networks to keep up with our exceedingly tumultuous housing market that's affecting so many other peoples, but not so many other people, but not so much these immigrant groups. And we did see examples of these social networks working, like you mentioned in Boston's Chinatown. People were connecting folks to jobs and to housing opportunities. And in Gulfton, although it was different, we did see a lot of mutual aid happening when it could. Mm-hmm. Through churches and through church groups, to financially support people through hard times. I even, this is the weirdest example too. I even saw a property manager host a food pantry outside of one of their offices one day. They had a volunteer group come and provide fresh fruits and vegetables and dried goods to residents of the neighboring apartment complexes. And when we went to go talk to her, she's like, yeah, I just thought that this would be a good opportunity for our residents. What we typically don't expect from a landlord, like landlord actions, essentially. Granted, she was just the property manager, so she was just working in the office, but 
it completely goes against a lot of the other tactics that we saw, which were like other property managers that were completely closed off from their residents and they employed all of these really difficult technologies. And it was really hard for people that were used to money orders or just paying in cash. Those different engagement dynamics were really interesting to see. And can you speak more to some of the distinct barriers that the immigrant community faces regarding affordable housing? Because there's two sides to the coin. We've been talking about the benefits that immigrant enclaves can provide. And we've already touched on the lower eviction rates in immigrant neighborhoods are a reflection of complicated situations, including that they have to live with lower quality of housing in order to retain that stability. So what are other barriers that the immigrant community faces in regards to affordable housing? So I would say one of the big ones is obviously language barriers. We encountered quite a few folks that were, that still had, you know, they were living in an apartment and everything, but they still were unclear about what was in their leasing paperwork just because Mm -hmm. it's almost always in English. Yeah. Although some landlords, I will say, did have Spanish translated leases to go along with the English ones. But, you know, sometimes folks, they can't read at the level that they would like to, to be able to comprehend the leases. And so others did note that they verbally translated leases to tenants. And we unfortunately just have to go off of their word that that's something that happened. I would say the language barrier is one of the largest. And then legal barriers is another one. You know, this need for certain documentation when applying for an apartment. So I apply for an apartment. I typically give them my like social security, a picture of my driver's license, a proof of two pay stubs or something like that. But when undocumented groups are applying for an apartment, typically they don't have a lot of that stuff. They don't have a rental history. They don't have pay stubs or anything like that because they're probably they might be getting paid in cash and they might not have a valid driver's license. And so what we saw in Gulfton, which was really interesting, is there are some apartments or some properties capitalized on the fact that undocumented folks and immigrants didn't have these documentation. And so they would charge more. Right. An additional security deposit. I think one place that we saw required four months rent as an initial deposit for the apartment because someone didn't have a lot of this. Yeah, it's insane. Just because some folks don't have the stuff. Like recent arrivals definitely don't have a rental history. So yeah, they they definitely capitalized on these challenges just to be able to provide housing of last resort, essentially. And yeah, all these barriers just create more vulnerabilities for some undocumented groups. They're particularly vulnerable to discrimination and exploitation in the rental market. Yeah, I really want to stress that this is almost always housing of last resort. We have minimal income, minimal connections, or few like long-term prospects. It's difficult to have ample choice when it comes to selecting housing. And I wonder if you can speak to these differences in characteristics between Chinatown and Gulfton in the sense that it seems like there's more institutional support for recent arrivals in the Chinatown neighborhood than in Gulfton. Although I don't know if that's too much of an overstatement, but 
I don't, when you've been talking, I haven't really heard about like that same institutional support of co-ethnic institutions, landlords, with an explicit goal of like assimilating recent arrivals into the economy. I think the best way to break this down, or at least the way that I've broken this down, is how renter-friendly these states and cities are. Mm. So Boston has a lot of really great renter-friendly and housing-friendly policies in place. Mm. So Gulfton, or sorry, Boston's Chinatown, like I mentioned before, had a lot of subsidized housing, which that's a lot of like public support going into making sure that people are stably housed. But you think the inverse, we went to Houston, Texas, which Houston is quite progressive, but Texas is not. Mm -hmm. And so with that comes a host of policies that go to neglect renters and not uplift them and more so benefit homeowners and what we think of like these, yeah, just homeowners in Texas, which is a whole slew of other challenges that don't necessarily always become... um, like homeownership is such a far, far goal for some of these communities. Yeah. Uh, to where they're they're almost always relegated to being renters. Right. And so with that, there was very few subsidized housing units in Houston. On it. And so what that mounted up to be was that there was little infrastructure in place for folks to be able to have that breathing room to provide these connections for folks. I also think that there might be a, another layer to this in that Gulfton was changing too. Like a few years ago, it was primarily a Mexican enclave. Mm-hmm. And then it's been changing more into a Central American enclave. Mm-hmm. And now there are Western parts of Gulfton that are changing into Middle Eastern enclaves. Mm-hmm. So a lot of um, Afghan immigrants came from when they actually, I don't know if you remember when um, that whole fiasco happened, when everyone was trying to get out, yeah. a lot of folks came straight to Houston and in that Gulfton area. And so a lot of the enclave, like what, what Gulfton's enclave is, is still being figured out, but it's a host of new, of new different places. I mean, just like historical research on the town, it was called the Ellis Island of the South which is really, wow, really interesting, right? Yeah. And so when it really speaks. Um, I want to say it was noted, called this in like the 80s, because that's when the transition happened from like a much more white working class demographic to primarily brown, immigrant, Latinos, and then now more Middle Eastern folks. So yeah, I think that that probably has a little bit more it plays a little bit more into what we saw. You know, there's there's a little bit more disconnect from um, cultural groups that are happening or that are they're formulating there. Right. It's different than this Chinatown neighborhood, which has had generations of migrants and a more longstanding history that has kept people tethered there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the last question that I've been asking this season is, what is something that has been inspiring you lately? Okay, so in the housing world, it's a little difficult to find <laughs> when, you know, we're constantly being told all the worst things about what's happening in our housing market. But I would say that a lot of my hope and a lot of my inspiration comes from folks that are organizing. hmm 
to pass more progressive policies in places that you might not even consider to really be viable to pass these progressive policies. And then especially as a Southerner born and raised, I'm particularly inspired by Southern organizers. So like one group that comes to mind is the Louisville Tenants Union. Mm -hmm. They're doing incredible work to pass policies that protect their renters, that prevent displacement from happening in their communities. And they're doing so in, you know, Kentucky, not necessarily the most renter-friendly place, like places that homeownership is like the end-all be-all of wealth building and whatnot. And they're really trying to re-envision what it means to have stability, to have joy, to live prosperously, which that's great. And they're going up against huge lobbying groups from realtors associations, apartment associations, these people that have giant, giant wallets, like tens of thousands of dollars to campaign against some of these groups. And they're still doing it and they're winning. And it's incredible. So I think that that's where a lot of my hope lies. And especially knowing that so many people are now starting to vote and they're starting to get it. Our housing is so critical to our collective well-being. Like my ability to be housed is, while not directly, directly affecting you, Yvette, it will affect you in the long run if I'm not housed. Right. And people understand that and they're putting that understanding into action. And I think that that's what keeps, it keeps me going. (laughs) Amazing. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. This was super illuminating. It was really interesting to learn about Gulfton, about this emerging Central American slash Middle Eastern enclave in Houston. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing your knowledge. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Bye, Kachimbonas. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, Becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona is the best way to do so for $3, 5 or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the Lit Reviews, which are book club style chats. Another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps podcast with visibility. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Kachimbonas!